Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. How's it going, everybody? Hope everything's going well for y'all. It is pretty fantastic for me here. Today we are recording at home instead of in the car because it's Sunday and I'm doing this on the fastest turnaround I can do it. So we're going to dive in to our first segment every episode, Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight is brought to you by our sponsorship from Pure MTGO and their sponsor at MTGO Traders. If you need magic content on the web, you need to go check out Pure MTGO. They've got something for everybody. Whatever your format, whatever your gameplay style, if it's remotely related to MTGO, they've got content for you. And while you're perusing the web, if you're an MTGO player like myself, the best place to get your cards is MTGO Traders, because instead of having to borrow them and give them back, they're just yours. So if you end up not liking a deck, you can get something back from it, rather than having to hold on, or, you know, use your rental service to get into a different one. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Budget Spotlight, we're highlighting an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a card with a commander focus that I feel like are undervalued either financially or in terms of gameplay. And we're going to start with a card that is very much not undervalued in terms of gameplay, but absolutely is in terms of finance. And that card is divide by zero. Uh, it is two and a blue instant return target spell or permanent when mana value one or less to its owner's hand learn. And divide by zero is currently 25 cents in paper and two cents on MTGO traders. Paper price coming from coolstuffinc.com. Because that's who I use the most. So what is there to say about this? This temp- as tempo cards go, this borders on unmatched, right? I mean you're bouncing something, whether it's on the field or not, you are fundamentally using this to exchange three mana for something they cannot recast right away. 
you are using this to buy a turn. And when you spend three mana to bounce something they can't recast and draw a card, it is repulse. But when you do that to a spell, it's like almost a remand. So it's, you know, part remand, part repulse, and the ability to choose between a lesson you want or to ditch a land to look for action while you're flooding out is just fantastic. Like, if you're on the play and you're already a little bit ahead, you've got the ability to use this to keep your opponent at bay, keep your opponent from casting cards that will catch them up. It works against cards that can't be countered, which is a big deal. It's just so good. So, I mean, as 25-cent cards go, you can do a whole heck of a lot worse than Divide by Zero. And yes, I know that comes with the caveat of having to get lessons, but is that really that big a deal? Because I don't feel like it is. Moving into our rare, we have Baleful Mastery. Baleful Mastery is three and a black instant. You, you can pay one and a black rather than pay this card's... Uh, mana cost if you paid the one in a black cost your target opponent the opponent draws a card exile target creature or planeswalker that is your choice of two or four mana if it's two mana you are minus wanting yourself in exchange for the ability to very efficiently remove a creature or planeswalker, if you pay the full retail on it, you are paying for essentially Vraska's Contempt. Now, price-wise, it's $2.50 on Cool Stuff Inc. or $0.80 cents on MTGO Traders. So price-wise, it's not ridiculous. So gone are the days where Vraska's Contempt is a staple remo removal effect in a format. But the fact that this card has flexibility in mana cost is clutch, right? Like the fact that you can play this early to get something off the table and you don't mind if they draw a card because the goal is just to keep them from getting ahead of you. You're definitely playing this card to try to leverage tempo early because you're banking on the fact that your opponent will not get to cast the card that they draw off of it. And there's also that odd, hilarious corner case where the drawback of it can actually steal a win from a deck that's playing fast as Oracle. Notably, Oracle hits the battlefield, their library is empty, and you respond to the, Thass the Thassa's Oracle trigger by casting Baleful Mastery to exile it, forcing them to draw a card with the Thassa's Oracle trigger on the stack. So they lose the game before they win the game. So... All in all, if you're only using it for that express purpose in the sideboard, it's still worth $0.08 cents on Magic Online. And the upside of being able to exile creatures or planeswalkers is a big deal and worth $2.50 in paper. Next on the list, we have Subtlety. And I'm going to be honest, I'm going to have to look up this card's wording. Give me just a minute because the internet is being non-cooperative. Come on, wake up. Subtlety. I was actually pleasantly surprised when I found out the, the card's price. I'm not going to lie. Our mythic is subtlety. It is two double blue flash flying three three. Elemental incarnation for people who care about that first creature type. When it enters a battlefield, choose up to one target creature or planeswalker spell 
its owner puts it on the top or bottom of their library, and the evoke cost, in other words, it will enter the battlefield, give you the enter the battlefield trigger, and then sacrifice itself, is exile a blue card from your hand. So it's trying really, really hard to be a force of will for creatures or planeswalkers. And its price tag right now is $8 in paper, $2.14 in MTGO traders. There's nothing subtle about what this card does, but there's a little bit of nuance to its usage. It gets borderline obnoxious alongside a card like Ephemerate and can interact with creatures and planeswalkers that otherwise couldn't be countered, which is actually a super big deal. The fact that, you know, once you start to pull ahead, you can use this to slam the door shut by your opponent trying to cast a powerful creature to claw back into it, or a combo piece, you can set them back a turn, and either get a 3-3 or whatever synergy you've got in your deck, sometimes both, if you're playing Ephemerate in your blue-white deck, you can exile a blue card to cast this, uh, get its trigger on the stack, Ephemerate it so that it will come back and counter you know, give you the ability to do it again. And it will stay on the battlefield this time so that when the ephemerate comes back, you know, it's obviously not as good as grief or uh, solitude, I think it is, in that, in that situation. But subtlety, it's just, it's just good. And out of the price tags of those incarnations, it's arguably the cheapest, if I remember correctly. So, all things considered, you can do a lot worse for 8 bucks or a little over $2 in, pay in uh, Magic Online. And last but not least is our Commander Focus card, Arcades the Strategist. Now, Arcades is one and bant to cast. So, one, a green, a white, and a blue. Legendary creature, Elder Dragon. Obviously, it's one of the five original Elder Dragons, but this one is the, the updated version from M19. You have Flying and Vigilance. Whenever a creature with Defender enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card. Each creature you control with Defender assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power and can attack as though it didn't have Defender. So, first of all, Sir Mix-a-Lot approves of this card pretty heddle, pretty pretty heartily. Uh, Price-wise, it is $2.50 in paper and $0.03 on Magic Online. So, as a starting point for a clear, like, line in the sand, this is what I want to do, Commander. As popular as Arcades is, that price tag is thoroughly reasonable. So... And in reference to what I was talking about earlier, Sir Mix a lot of proofs because we like big butts and we cannot lie. Drawing cards and deploying roadblocks is a reasonable way to catch up if you're in the unenviable position of being the last person to get to do anything. There's a lot of fat butted walls in Magic, especially in those three colors. You've got cards like Wall of Runes at one mana, Wall of Omens at two mana, Wall of Denial at three mana. It's not just a river in Egypt. Sometimes it's just a thing that goes in front of everything swinging at you. But you also get to gradually transition your defense to offense, meaning a modest start can snap into a big momentum shift later once Arcades comes down and allows you to start attacking. You know, you 
sop up the damage on the ground for a few turns, and then you just drop your commander and start attacking. And that can allow you to start to pull it, you know, catch back up, pull ahead, whatever. You can do a lot worse than that for 250 or 3 cents, depending on your choice of medium. So that's all we've got for Budget Spotlight, everybody. I hope you uh, glean useful information from that. So let's transition now into our Brew of the Week, which is a segment where I'm talking about a deck or a concept. In this case, it's going to be a concept that I feel like doesn't get the, the, the due it deserves or I just like it. In this case, this is definitely one I just really, really, really like. And one of the things I like to do with this segment is try to put people looking into things that like they can play in multiple formats, not just standard, not just modern, not just like the overall skill set you use in building the deck in any format translates, even if the card choices differ based on the format constraints. And the deck we're talking about this week, the archetype we're talking about this week is Blue Tempo. Now, this most recently was made popular by uh, Autumn Burchette's Mythic Championship 1 winning Mono Blue Tempo deck way, way back in uh, Ravnica Allegiant Standard. It was a deck that I played until they told me I couldn't anymore. It was one of my favorite decks of all time. But it's important to understand this archetype from the ground up and not find yourself falling victim to relying on specific card choices that that deck used. I.e., you don't have to be a deck full of one-mana flying creatures and a card like a Curious Obsession to build a mono-blue tempo deck or a blue tempo deck with a splash. From the core concept level, you want to create an engine with some sort of card draw or selection effect that repeats, which will fuel your hand to play Bounce and Counter Magic. The goal with this deck is never to attain full control of the game. It's just to get either catch up or get far enough ahead that the stuff you have, the bounce, the counter magic, and the card draw, is enough to keep your opponent from catching up to where you are. It's not so much that you don't want them to play magic. They are going to play magic at you. It's just a matter of whether or not you care. How you go about it depends mainly on two factors. One, whether or not you're on the play and what interaction the opponent has for your engine. What I mean by that is you're always seeking to establish that engine, but you don't want to do it too early if you are in danger of losing it to opposing interaction. It's very much like an amorphous blob of a, of a deck. You don't have clearly defined turn sequences that you always want to take. You might, within the realm of a given matchup, but even then you have to worry, be wary of specific sideboard cards or some cards opponents might have gotten frisky and decided to main deck or otherwise have access to. From a customization standpoint, there's absolutely no rule that tells you to stay mono-blue or that your engine needs to conform to any particular form. It can be evasive creatures, pay you off for playing evasive creatures, or pay you off from casting spells. The important thing is, you need to be able to apply pressure in two different ways. In the case of, say, Delver, you are doing it with your one-mana creature that pays you off for playing a bunch of instants and sorceries, and those instants and sorceries serve as your selection engine. You just play a bunch of cantrips to get through your deck quickly. 
That's the form of Delver and Pauper and Legacy and sometimes Modern. And arguably the version of Delver you would want to play in Standard. On the other hand, you know, the Mono Blue Tempo deck from NC1 was very much just a pile of flying creatures, some counter spells, a little bit of bounce, some flash creatures, some tricky removal effects in the form of cards like Merfolk Trickster to, you know, remove flying from a 2-2 attacker and function as a Doom Blade. Uh, and then you played some counter spells and you had Curious Obsession as your draw engine. Notably, you know, you were only playing Opt as a selection piece, and then you had Curious Obsession and Charter Course that would draw cards. So your actual draw engine was very light, but the things you had to play in order to enable it reliably took up a lot of room in your deck. Your splash regions, English, your splash reasons can be similarly amorphous. From efficient removal or disruption, a secondary engine card, or even a curve-topping threat. I'm not going to lie, there was a time period where I played a Black Splash in my Mono Blue Tempo deck during that format, because I felt Thief of Sanity was better against the field, not in the mirror, but it was better against the field than Tempest Gen was. Because... Thief of Sanity basically came with its own curious obsession. I was drawing a card off of my opponent's library every time it connected. So it allowed me to really stay far ahead of my opponent. And Black also gave me access to Kite Sail Freebooter as a way to stress my opponent's removal options in conjunction with Siren Storm Tamer Dive Down and what have you. The deck was decidedly probably not good enough. I never got a chance to play it at any sort of a high-level event. I chickened out of playing it at Grand Prix Memphis that year. I ended up playing Model Blue instead because I wanted to trust people who'd played more Magic than me. Strengths and weaknesses, you are very strong on the play in the dark. As you often get on the board first, and you just have to press the advantage once your engine's running. You flip a Delver, you just keep them from playing anything that gets it off the table. You protect your Delver, you protect your threat that's on the table, applying pressure. Right? You get ahead. You keep attacking every bounce spell, every divide by zero remand counter spell functions as getting an extra combat phase. And you just keep applying pressure until your opponent is soft enough that something kills them. Whether it's a creature land, a burn spell, uh, a top, you know, a curve topping, big dumb creature with haste, whatever, right? Your your game plan on the play is very very good against a lot of the format as a whole, or certainly decks that can catch up to you. There, you know, decks that are playing lots of powerful cards, decks that are going wide. You are much weaker on the draw, and you are a little bit squishy against aggro because you lose a lot of your mana advantages in that matchup. The aggro decks tend to have a similarly disciplined mana curve to what you do, so it's really hard to trade for stuff at a mana advantage. They can force you to play out your hand fairly quickly, which plays right into theirs because now they can beat you up and take your lunch money. <laughs> From an Outlook perspective, I mean, there's a sizable number of players, myself included, that will always be trying to make this archetype viable. It's not to say it is, 
or isn't, depending on what format you're playing. Obviously, it's one of the best decks in Legacy. Pauper, you could argue modern, historic. It's like fine and standard. It's not great. Pioneer, I don't know. I haven't played a ton of the format. But it tends to thrive most when it gets access to a good number of ways to stop opposing interaction or during formats that are dominated by mid-range mirrors. Because in mid-range mirrors, players tend to use a lot of mana. And when players are using a lot of mana, trying to get over the top of each other, you can sneak under them with a deck like this and just really frustrate them to death. So, that's all I got for Brew of the Week. Let's move on to our main segment. And this is the first in a series. I don't know how many episodes this is going to be. I'm kind of playing that by ear. But we're going to do a series on the play or draw dynamic in Magic the Gathering. Because it's something I feel like doesn't get enough attention outside of corner cases like sideboarding. There's not a lot of context. Not a lot of... There's a lot of talk about why it's right to choose the play over the draw in basically every circumstance. In Reed Dukes level 1, he specifies that, you know... Taking the play, if you take the play 100% of the time, every time you win a die roll, you will be right over 90% of the time. But play versus draw is a huge part of every card game, particularly in how each game treats going second. Because obviously Magic is not the only game on the block anymore. Magic treats going second, you get an extra card. You get to start with eight cards where your opponent started with seven. Yu-Gi-Oh! gives you an extra card and the first chance to attack, and Yu-Gi-Oh! doesn't have a mana system, so like that's usually big enough to matter. The extra card is a big deal, because that game doesn't have that further resource base. It is way easier to punish your opponent for not being able to stop you if you're going second. Hearthstone gives you an extra card and an extra mana source. Not a permanent one, but a one-shot extra mana source. Cartfight Vanguard gives you the first attack. Pokemon gives you an extra card in the first attack, similar to, to Magic, or similar to Yu-Gi-Oh!, but in conjunction with a, a form of the mana system in the energy mechanic, the, the energy card requirements to pay costs. The key theme in all of these is balancing or leveraging the advantage you get from your position. There's a notable discrepancy in magic between uh, play and draw win rates, especially in best of one standard formats. Quite frankly, if you're on the play in best of one, you stand a better chance of winning your game than you do on the draw. It's just math. Like, the more games you play, the more games you're going to experience, and the more games you experience, you're going to start to see a pattern, and that pattern dictates pretty clearly that when you're on the draw, you are less likely to win, just as a rule in best of one. You know, you've got access to high, uh, uh, haymaker sideboard cards and powerful, you know, whatever countermeasures you want to take after sideboarding that can help even the odds. But where Magic frequently differs from other games, in particular in Yu-Gi-Oh!, is there's not a lot of discussion about the concept of playing second. 
Yu-Gi-Oh! There's a ton of content about it. There are whole deck archetypes devoted to the idea of just, it doesn't matter what I'm up against, I am blindly taking the draw. Because I feel like what I do against what you do going first is good enough. Now, obviously, there's there's not a great parallel to draw there. Because, again, Magic has the, the balanced resource system. There's no, oops, I killed you on turn one going second by breaking your board and, you know, stopping you from making it properly and whatever. But the theory is there where it is not here. It's almost always to correct to choose to play first when given the choice, and the reason boils down to the idea of dictating terms of engagement. Whether you're playing a control deck and you just get to get your tap land out of the way early under absolutely zero pressure, or you're playing the aggro deck and you have your best one drop, by showing them what you're starting on, you are showing them what this game's going to be about. They have to start making decisions. They have to start respecting what you you could possibly have. They start thinking. You get to react to what they do. That being said, it's important to understand what you're fighting over on the draw, even if you're ever, even if you're unlikely to actively choose that position. It's really important to understand what the game is about. So, what are these terms of engagement we're talking about? I mean, it can't be all sunshine. It can't be super simple. And to that end, I would say you're right in the sense that we're doing this as a multi-part series. So what I'm talking about here are the fundamental theory implications of what the difference is between being on the play and on the draw. When you're on the play, your primary resource is tempo. Whether you're proactive, reactive, or somewhere in between, the opportunity to take the first action at every stage of mana development is a big deal. You know, you get to make the first land drop out of every turn cycle. You get to draw the first card out of every turn cycle except the first. The opponent is forced to play early turns trying to catch up to you, either trying to find a way to apply pressure when you got to take the first turn, or trying to find ways to mitigate pressure if you are the one applying it. More proactive decks are better at leveraging this advantage, but it's typically the stronger position to take overall. Like It's rarely wrong to take the play if offered the choice, but again, we're not always offered the choice. So what does that mean for you on the draw? You are looking to catch up on tempo in order to leverage getting that extra card to start the game. You are starting with card advantage where the opponent is starting with action advantage. This can be achieved in a number of ways, but for but by far the most evergreen is the ability to trade cards at a mana advantage. Cheap removal. Cheap interaction, cheap creatures that block well. Whatever the case may be, that's what you're interested in. That's how you want, that's what you want to leverage if you're on the draw. That's why you will frequently see the aggro deck that's on the draw come out a little bit more passive using burn spells, using removal, and then slamming a more powerful creature later to leverage the cards in their hand as their opponent starts to flood out. It's simple trying to dictate turn you know trying to 
stick to the terms of engagement. You are playing to catch up to your opponent who had the play. This essentially, when you're playing with the ability to trade cards at a mana advantage, you are trying to invalidate an opponent's turn. And that allows you to steal back some of the tempo you lost. If your opponent taps out for a three-mana creature with no haste and no protection, and you can spend two mana to remove that creature, and then untap, play your own third land, play your own three-mana threat, or play your own third land and leave up a counterspell for their, their four-mana threat, now you're on the road to keeping them from killing you. You are on the road to being able to mitigate the loss of tempo you had to start the game. You know, you interact on turn two, interact on turn three. From your perspective, their turn four, their turn, their turn three, their turn four, you're interacting. Well, now on your turn four, you've got the capacity to potentially double spell. Or you can foretell with another piece of interaction up. Or you can play your four mana creature if you are one of these mid-range piles that's playing a bunch of like chariots and stuff. You, know, you can jam your chariot after you've interacted with your opponents. Bouncing their chariot to get yours down first is a big deal. Countering their chariot to get yours down first is a big deal. It also creates windows to catch all the way up, either by resolving your own powerful threat the opponent needs to answer, or by double spelling to maintain consistency, which is kind of what we're talking about here. You know, you start to pull ahead, you get to get to five mana. Now you can represent divide by zero plus interaction, or play a two-mana creature and leave up interaction, or play a three-mana creature and leave up interaction, or go double threat and make your opponent do something about it because you've been able to interact with their two- and three-mana plays. Whatever the case may be, it gives you the option that when your opponent curves out, you can disrupt key points of that curve, make them functionally skip those turns... And in exchange, you get to catch up to them. You get to catch up to their point in mana development. If you're a ramp deck, it allows you to jump ahead of your opponent in mana development. Because now you can, you know, you counter their two drop, then you untap and field trip. Now you're going to have access to the same amount of mana every turn. They're going to get to play stuff first, but I'm going to get to play the same stuff. So they have to worry if they tap out for Ren and Seven, and then I go for mine, and then they don't have an answer or what have you, however the format, whatever format you're playing. So why are we doing this in two parts? Frankly, this was something that I felt like really dictated, or really demanded a, a more specialized look from the standpoint of how you approach games on the draw specifically, depending on what style of deck you're playing, a proactive deck, a reactive deck, or you know, some sort of a, a mid-range deck. So with that in mind, what I wanted to look at in, in depth in a little bit more detail is the idea of not whether or not you want to choose player draw, because that's been done to death by people a lot better at Magic than me, but how to play games with what your deck is versus what your opponents are based on whether you're on the draw or the of the play. 
Obviously, your fundamental rules apply either way. If you're on the play, you want tempo. If you're on the draw, you want to leverage card advantage. And that's not a, even 100% true all the time. You know, control decks still want to leverage the tempo advantage, yes, but as a core concept, you are interested in leveraging card advantage. But you can do it from a better position when you start the game by being able to make the first land drop. Countering your opponent's two drop when they're on the draw feels really strong with Drawry Disruption. Being forced to take a turn off, get attacked by their one and two drops in order to counter their three drop with Drawry Disruption feels a whole lot worse. So, you know, from the standpoint of which position would you rather be in, obviously you would rather be on the play. But I wanted a chance to devote a lot of time to talking about what it's like, what gameplay, how gameplay changes if you're on the draw, both based on what you do as an, as an archetype, whatever your deck is, whether it's proactive, reactive, or somewhere in between, or just like general rules to live by, if you will. So next episode is going to be covering this from the standpoint of the proactive deck against the field. So when you are playing a deck that your opponent wants, that generally speaking wants to leverage tempo as a resource anyway, again, obviously on the play, you're going to be a lot stronger. But I really want to approach how you handle being on the draw in all of these different matchups, because from that standpoint, I didn't feel like I had enough time in my normal somewhere around 30 to 45 minute episode to cover that. And I did not have the opportunity to do like a three or four hour episode. I just don't have that much time in my life. So <laughs> with that in mind, that's going to wrap up this week's episode, everybody. Again, thank you for ch uh, tuning in. If you do, uh, don't forget to check out the rest of the network, constructedcriticism.com. They've got great stuff going on. Spencer's back on CC. Common Knowledge is still rolling along. Drafting Archetypes is just one of the master classes of magic content on the web. So just do yourself a solid and go check that out. And not for nothing, but if you like what we're doing here, enough to help me keep doing it, patreon.com slash omerpathmtg. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, head over there, check it out. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, you can find me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. You can join the conversation in our Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you are a patron of the show, you get access at $1 or more a month to the Patron Pathfinders Discord, where we're talking about episode topics, we're talking about, uh, I'm sharing deck lists, I'm talking about things I like, things I don't like. I want more people in there. I want to talk to more people. I like talking to people. In case y'all haven't guessed. So, with that in mind, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. So, thanks for tuning in. Everybody's got something going on right now. Things are obviously not great. There's reasons for stress. There's reasons for concern. I myself actually finally broke down over the past week and went and got a consultation with a physician on medication for depression. 
because it's something that I've dealt with for a long time. I just mask really, really effectively because I've had to do it for years with ADHD. And it finally just kind of reached a boiling point where I'm not in danger, like I'm not in crisis mode, I'm not having intrusive thoughts of like hurting myself or anybody else. There's nothing like that going on. But I just feel felt bad all the time about basically everything. I just, you know, it felt like one of those situations where it doesn't feel like there's any kind of a light at the end of it. So you never know what someone is going through, I guess is the point I want to make here. So when you are interacting with other people, whether online, in person, whatever, please, please, please lead with kindness. You don't know what kind of impact it's going to have on someone. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, play fast, but be kind. And we'll catch you next week. Be safe, everyone.